Hi everyone, Dr. Elizabeth Bonet here. Dr. Liz, welcome to the Hypnotize Me podcast. Before we jump in, please note that the podcast is not mental health treatment, nor should it replace mental health treatment. If you need psychotherapy or hypnotherapy, please seek treatment from a trained professional. I do hypnosis all over the world, so please feel free to contact me through my website, drlizhypnosis.com, D-R-L-I-Z-hypnosis.com. Hi everyone, Dr. Liz here. Before we get started, if you wouldn't mind leaving a review of the podcast on iTunes, I would really appreciate it. I love getting fresh reviews. So that is my request for this week. Now this episode does not talk about hypnosis, which I know is unusual for my podcast. Even with three and a half years of episodes talking about all kinds of different topics, Hypnosis is generally worked in there somehow, but I thought it was an important episode to air because so many people struggle with infidelity, whether they're being cheated on by a partner and the trauma of that, or whether they're one doing the cheating. So both Marnie and Dwayne are experts in this area. Marnie Breaker is a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified sex addiction therapist, and that's a really hard certification to get, I can tell you that, and certified clinical partner specialist. She's also one of the founders of the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialist. Dwayne Osterland is the co-founder of Nova's Mindful Life Institute, and his focus is on treating process addictions. Process addictions are sex, gambling, and food. He's also the host of the Addicted Mind podcast. Together, they co-host the Helping Couples Heal podcast and workshops. And they were doing workshops all over the U.S. in person. I know they just had one completely online because of the pandemic, but I know they're returning to in-person workshops when they can. I myself am trained in couples therapy And it's only about 15% of therapists who are trained in couples therapy. So if you go looking for one, whether you do that individually for yourself to talk about your partnership or as a couple, I encourage you to look for someone who has specific training in couples therapy because it makes a huge difference. And even with years and years and years of training myself, I still learn something new in this podcast. So I hope this helps someone, whichever side that you're on. Let's jump in. Peace. Welcome to the Hypnotize Me podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it is my pleasure. So let's start by each of you giving a little bit of background about how you got into this area of work. So Dwayne, would you like to start? Sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, as you said, my name is Dwayne Osterlin. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified uh, sex addiction therapist, and also the co-founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling and Recovery. And uh, how did I get into this work? Well, I've been a therapist um, probably about 15 years now, and uh, specifically working with people who struggle with uh, addiction. And uh, because I've had that in my own life um, and experienced it at a young age and, and got into recovery. And so uh, addiction has always been a topic that has been uh, near and dear to my, to my heart. Mm-hmm. 
And, um, and you run the addicted mind podcast. Right? Yeah, I run the addicted mind podcast. And as well as I'm a co-host of the helping couples heal podcast that specifically works with betrayal and relational trauma. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I haven't listened to your newer one, but the addicted mind podcast, I love like I listen to it on a regular basis. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Thank you. But I have to check out I the new one. It. I encourage my listeners to check out the newer one too. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So I've been doing this work for quite a while and I love it. Wonderful. And Marnie, how about you? So like Dwayne, I'm a marriage and family therapist and a certified sex addiction therapist. I'm also a certified clinical partner specialist, which means that I, I've been certified to work with partners of sex addicts from a trauma um, perspective mm. or trauma lens. That is freely specialized. Yeah. <laughs> like that's super specialized. specialized. <laughs> like where did you, it is very, very specialized. Yeah, where did you get that certification? Like who even offers that? Is it um, Patrick Carnes and his institute or where is it? So Patrick Carnes Institute, which is ITAP, is how Dwayne and I got certified to be uh, sex addiction therapists. And ITAP does now have a partner's certification program. I don't know the details of that, but prior to them, years prior to them starting this certification to be a partner specialist, an organization called APSATS was created. And that is Association for Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. Okay. And I was actually one of the founding board members. Ooh. And so that's how I got certified. Yeah. So they've been around, I think, since 2012. Um, and they're still doing that certification and bringing people on who want to work specifically with partners. Okay. So that's pretty new then. Right? I mean, this will publish in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Relatively new. Yeah. And I I own a center in LA called the Center for Relational Healing. Mm -hmm. And like uh, and, and I'm the co-host of the Helping Couples Heal podcast with Dwayne. And I'm really passionate about this topic. So I'm excited that you are, you know, inviting us here to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, fantastic. Dwayne, where's your center located? Um, I'm in Long Beach, California. So Beach. just south of LA. Okay. So yeah. did you two know each other in person before you started the podcast? Well, actually, we've known each other for quite a while. We did our training together for our certification as sex addiction therapists mm. back almost, I want to say, 10 years ago now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we've been colleagues every, ever since and, and friends. And um, this evolved out of our work together. Mm -hmm. We saw an area where people really needed help, specifically couples needed help with this betrayal and relational trauma. And we came together to, to create that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I see a huge need. I have what I call um, an unadvertised specialty in sex addiction because I am not certified as a sex addiction specialist, although I have quite a bit of experience in that area. So, you know, I don't feel comfortable <laughs> advertising that, obviously, but sure, I am sure, amazed yeah. at how many people show up in my office with either they're somewhere on the scale or their partner is in the relationships or often they'll come in for an affair recovery and someone's had an affair and mm -hmm. they are traumatized when the partners is usually one of the ones who didn't have the affairs traumatized and then right. it really comes out in the intake and assessment and everything that Perhaps this wasn't a, a one-time affair. Perhaps this was multiple right. behaviors that have happened. So one question I have is for our listeners, like how do you 
determine, okay, my partner had an affair, but are they really on the sex addict scale and where are they? Or is this just simply an affair that they had? I, I just want to answer that first with, with saying, and then Dwayne, I'm happy to turn it over to you, that I'll let you talk about assessing for sex addiction. But what sure. I wanted to say is that with regard to the partner, it's actually not as important whether or not the person who's done the betrayal is an addict because the impact on the partner, which is essentially trauma, is the same. Mm. So while while it is important to discern if somebody is a sex addict or they're, they're not or they've had a series of affairs and made poor choices or whatever it is, um, that will impact their treatment for sure. Mm-hmm. You're obviously not going to treat someone who's an addict as you would someone who's not an addict. But for the partner's experience, um, you can put um, a group of women in a room together who have had, whether it's, you know, their husbands had a secret porn addiction that they never knew about. So it was this like hidden life or someone whose husbands have had a, you know, a series of affairs or someone who, who's a, whose husband's a full-blown sex addict and their experience of pain and betrayal is the same. What I hear sometimes though is, all right, if this is a one-time thing, I think he can recover, let's say. Okay. And we're just, just for ease, I think we're going to talk about like male, female here versus like, all right, if this is a repeated pattern, first of all, I'm always so surprised at like how often partners stay, even when it's a repeated pattern with somebody and that, you know, we can get into attachment, all kinds of discussions around that. But sometimes it is a deciding factor for a partner a spouse saying, okay, well, you know, if this is a one-time thing, I think we can recover from this. But if this is a pattern where it's like ongoing, I'm sort of out of here. I don't think that, you know, I've seen that before where the woman's like, I'm out of here. Like, yeah, but, but as a, as a, you know, just devil's advocate, often when it is an addiction, a partner is often likely to stay because they're being told this is a, this is a disease. Yes. And if my partner was diagnosed with cancer, I would not leave. So, you know, so there's, yeah. So I do, you do see people, you know, saying, oh, it's one time I can stay, but then you'll also see people when it's addiction and it's been multiple, multiple partners over many, many years and they might choose to stay as well. Yeah. I think it's unpredictable until you really, you know, get into the person's history. Right. And what I, I have found a, a lot is when people come to my office and, and they they come in together, a lot of them want to work it out because even though there is this betrayal and relational trauma, they have history together. There are aspects of their partner that they uh, hold very dear and and want to find a way through it, especially when you're looking at sex addiction, because sometimes it is so, it can be so hidden Mm -hmm. that uh, the partner can be blindsided by finding this information out, which causes a whole bunch of trauma. We'll get into more about that later. But they also have these other aspects of their partner that are really meaningful to them. And they want to work to preserve that and save that. Yes. So you're saying that sometimes when it is presented as like, yes, your partner has a disease, it is addiction, then they're more likely to even have compassion for that. Like, all right, the recovery one is possible, but two, there's some compassion that comes out as well. 
Yeah, and that and that can develop over time as the trauma is um, addressed. So when you're saying, okay, you see a couple in your office for the first time, and the partner is traumatized, right? What does that feel like to a partner? Usually, um, a partner describes all of the same sort of trauma symptoms that we would see in our office with anyone presenting with PTSD. So you're seeing just a lot of the depressive traits, um, a lot of, you know, hypervigilance. That's probably a big one. It's this constant fear um, and feeling like one's in danger. And which is often, by the way, I want to say true. Mm -hmm. You know, partners used to get this rap like they're crazy because they're detectives and they're looking and investigating. But the truth is they're actually taking care of themselves because especially with sex addiction, there's so many lies. And oftentimes when they think they've heard it all, they'll find out something else. And so- it becomes almost impossible to believe that they know everything. Therefore, there's this hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a big one that we see, you know, and people really struggling with sleep and and eating and startle response and mm-hmm. um, again all of the nor- the normal PTSD symptoms that we we would typically see in somebody who's been traumatized. Yeah, I mean, I know it's like their world has just been shifted, like the ground under them has moved. You know, really, and, and I think yeah. that's a a really big point to bring out because a lot of partners, you know, they, there's this existential crisis where they think that their life is a certain way. And then all of a sudden they find out that it's not that way. And when our reality is shaken like that, we fall into trauma because we can't feel safe when we don't know how to predict the future. And so a lot of partners come in and they they feel like they're going crazy because all these uh, symptoms that happen due to uh, this serial infidelity and serial betrayal. Mm-hmm. And also all the trauma that comes with a person who is struggling with, a, with an addiction has to keep it secret mm-hmm. to keep the addiction going. So all the gaslighting that comes with that, that also has its own level of trauma as well. And so there's a lot going on and partners um, really at, at times can feel just so overwhelmed and at their wits end, like they paralyzed in some ways. Yes. Yeah. So it is a really like a freeze response sometimes that they get. Can be. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. What do you recommend to a partner who has experienced this? Like, let's say someone who just found out about an affair. And they're going through everything that you described. What do you recommend that they do? Well, I think that the first thing, if if, if the partner came to my office with her husband, you know, and, and they're a couple, I would immediately suggest that she get individual therapy for sure and start to um, get education. It, assuming it's sex addiction, education is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, getting information and knowledge can help somebody stabilize and start to, okay, okay, I'm hearing that. I understand. You know, that can be, that can be very helpful. Um, but really getting help to deal with the trauma symptoms and also crisis management. How do you help somebody be able to, sorry, did you guys hear that? I apologize. Yeah, it's okay. I'm turning off the do not disturb. Um, (laughs) Sorry about that. Uh, So, so the partner will definitely need her own 
help. And then we also would often recommend a partner's group. I think that there is probably nothing better for somebody who's been betrayed and who feels alone. And like Dwayne said, oftentimes it's in secret. Mm-hmm. And and if someone's going to stay, they don't want to tell people because they're afraid, well, then what are people going to think of my partner, right? Absolutely. And, um, or so they're themselves. So many- they're protecting themselves. I hear that over and over. I cannot tell anyone, not even my best friend. I'm not telling my parents. Right. What if they like treat him badly, you know, or what if they say you have to leave? Yeah. It's very isolating. Yeah. It puts them in a, in a very, very, very difficult position. I'd also say too, sometimes when a partner, the first time they walk into the office and then if they haven't gotten any help before is just to start to name their systems, their symptoms and normalize them. And sometimes when they just hear the words, you're not crazy. This is part of trauma. Mm-hmm. That alone can be a relief because when you have this kind of trauma with any kind of PTSD, to, to deal with that trauma, you start acting in ways that sometimes go against your own value system to cope with the trauma symptoms. Mm-hmm. How so? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, a, you could have the example of a, of a person who could really be there for maybe their mom and they could be there for their kids and can be emotionally connected to their kids. Now they no longer can do that because they're so overwhelmed, uh, right? Mm-hmm. And then they begin to feel like a bad parent, like, oh, what's wrong with me? I can't be there for my kids. I'm so overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. That's yeah, example. like they used to help their kids with with homework right after you know school, and now they're coming home, and instead of helping their kids with homework, they're either go, you know they're going to their room and they're getting on the computer and they're trying to find information or get information on treatment options, or they're just depressed and, and can't you know really um, they don't feel like they could show up for their kids in a in a healthy way in a, in, a, in a productive way, and so they'll you know sort of retreat to their bedroom, things like yeah. that. And so oftentimes people truly feel like they don't know who they are anymore. They're losing, they're losing themselves. And and they also feel that they don't know what to believe about anything anymore, mm-hmm. you know, because there's this, this idea, okay, if the person I trusted the most did this, then number one, anybody could do this. How can I trust anybody? And also how can I trust myself? Because I chose this person. How did I not see mm-hmm. it? You know, there's a lot, often it's so, so sad. There's a lot of self-blame and self-doubt. And, and you know, something that I think is really important to address also is that a partner is not just dealing with the trauma of the sexual behavior and the lies and secrets. There's also almost always a pattern of accompanying, you know, abusive behaviors or manipulative strategies that accompany lying and and having a deceptive private life, secret life. So the, like Dwayne had mentioned, the gaslighting, but also um, transferring of blame and sometimes just like, you know, verbal abuse, Mm -hmm. um, complete denial, shutdown, withdrawal. Um, it can be pretty awful. So when a partner finds out the truth finally, there's also this reality of, oh my God, all of that stuff that was going on in this marriage before, that was actually all part of this too, right? This was protecting the secret. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot to recover from. Is that part of the reason you recommend individual therapy for the partner is to help process some of what's happening, some of what's going on, not just individually with them, but trauma aspects, like how do they reorient? How do they recenter so that let's say they can be present like they want to be? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think the individual therapy, in fact, in the early stages is more important than couples therapy. I would I would say that a person needs to stabilize themselves first. Mm-hmm. And then maybe it might be appropriate to do some initial couples, you know, crisis management mm-hmm. to help the couple manage just sort of navigate the beginning stages, but not get into the therapy until both people are stable, but particularly the partner's trauma symptoms are stable. Um, oh, really and interesting that you say that because I think the instinct is we need a couples therapist. I mean, as a couples therapist for, I don't know, over mm-hmm. 10 years now, I guess. That is one of the calls you get is I've just discovered my husband's had an affair and we're freaking out. And could you please see us like X, Y, Z, you know, like tonight or tomorrow or mm-hmm. something like that. So I think sometimes the instinct or in an hour. Yes, in an hour. Right. Sometimes the instinct of a couples therapist is to say um, yes, and we'll continue with couples therapy when I agree with you. Sometimes what really needs to happen is, okay, let's do some sessions just to handle, manage the crisis here. But now you really need to do your own work and then come back together when you're ready. But that's so hard to like say when that would be. Right. Like I had a therapist that actually said she didn't recommend therapy at the beginning of recovery when someone first enters recovery, any kind of recovery, because she said the person isn't stable enough. They don't have the ego strength, enough ego strength, because therapy is hard. It often feels bad when you walk out because you've talked about really hard stuff and all this pain comes up and you have to be in a place to be able to take care of yourself and handle some of that. So sometimes what happens is someone's not at that point, it'll send them back into addiction was her perspective. So right. this is just one person's and, perspective. But I always remembered that in terms of, yeah, sometimes someone needs to get into recovery, stabilize, and then do therapy later. And you're saying the same in this case. But I, I would I would want to add a caveat to that because I think it's important to say that, yes, Um, the addict has to stabilize out of their addiction because if they go into couples therapy and they're still acting out and and they're trying to bond Mm -hmm. and there's still active betrayal going on, that is going to harm the partner even more. So we have to be very, very careful and make sure that the addiction is stabilized. And then also for the addict, they kind of have a dual job here. They have to be able to learn to cope with their own shame and guilt Mm -hmm about the betrayals, right, that they may have done in the service of their addiction. And it is critical that they get educated about partner trauma right from the beginning Mm -hmm. so that they can begin to understand the symptomology that a partner expresses when they're in those trauma reactions and learn how to respond to their partner in a way that promotes healing right? So there's that critical component. They got to stabilize that addiction, have someone to talk about all their shame and guilt, and then also learn how to be compassionate and understand partner trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a big task. And I think what you're speaking to is, I think what you're speaking to is sometimes what you do have is partners who say, well, yeah, now get over it and let's continue. Like I've told you everything now we're done right? Like, let's not talk about this again. And obviously a good therapist would say, no, your spouse is going through quite a bit of trauma and there are some things that you do need to talk about. And it's not as simple as like, all right, you know, everything, let's pretend like nothing happened, you know? So, um, Arnie, you're going to say something. 
Yeah, I was going to um, say two things, actually. One thing um, that's important is that when a partner and an addict come into treatment, that they learn about the brain and the impact of betrayal on the brain, specifically betrayal, um, because that's been really fascinating for me as a clinician to, to, to read about and to learn about. Mm-hmm. And a colleague, another sex addiction therapist, has a video out on, on YouTube, and I watched it, and he talks about the, um, the hippocampus being like a filing cabinet in the brain Mm -hmm. and it organizes all of your life experiences and everything. And that's how you make sense. And that's how you know your story. And it's also how we feel safe because if we know what's happened in the past, right, we can predict the future, which is, okay, we're going to be safe. And then when when a partner discovers betrayal, it's like all of the the files get dumped out on the floor Ooh. and they're just in a total, they're a mess, mm-hmm. they're disorganized, it doesn't make sense anymore. And you keep asking questions over and over and over, like, oh my God. So when we were we were there, th- that's what was happening. Oh my God. And then mm-hmm. so so over and over and over and over again, they're asking questions. And that's really normal because she is trying to essentially reorganize her life experience and put that all back together. Oh yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. They, I mean, it will feel like you're rewriting history. Like your history is no longer solid for a partner who's been betrayed. And then that gets into what you said earlier about, okay, now how do I trust anything here that affects my ability to trust moving forward, that my reality is what my reality is. Like for 10 years, I thought my reality was this when we were in, I don't know, Aruba or something. And when in actuality, what was happening was this. Therapy really is important in terms of navigating that and um, reconciling it. So it's sort of like putting the files back together and maybe they have different colored folders or they're in a different order, but eventually that does happen. Yeah, give and people I, some I would hope also, there. <laughs> you know, it does. Yeah, it does, but yeah, I yeah, definitely it, it it definitely does. And I think what Marnie brings up a really good point because when uh, the addict begins to understand how their partner's brain is reacting, right? They can take it a little bit out of themselves and understand that uh, it's not all about them. It's about this trauma. Mm-hmm. And so they can learn to to show up. And it, and it makes sense that, yes, she's going to ask that same question several, several times because her brain is still making sense of it and sorting it out and refiling it and creating this new history. So you you have to be patient. And so when the person who's done the betrayal understands this, it sometimes helps them to kind of take a step back and just be a little more calm for their partner as their partner heals. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because they're looking at it now as a, as a universal reaction as opposed to looking at it as, oh my God, why is she responding this way to what I did, mm-hmm. right? This is, this is such a, a huge reaction and often oftentimes this partner trauma is minimized. Um, one of the reasons that Dwayne and I partnered to do these workshops, these helping couples heal workshops is actually because of what we're talking about now, having couples come together and an addict hearing other partners, not his own partner, but other partners saying essentially the same things that he's been hearing from his own partner, but not able to tolerate it because of his own shame. Um, You know, but hearing quotes that we that we use from other partners from past workshops to really sort of drive home the the intensity of the the trauma oftentimes they leave the workshop feeling even though if they're like a year into program or a year into recovery they're like oh my god 
I have an entirely different understanding now of why my relationship, I've been sober, I haven't been doing this stuff for a year, maybe sometimes more than a year, but my relationship is maybe worse now than it was at the beginning, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think that that's, um, that's because they, that shame that Dwayne was referring to earlier can be, um, that could be such a huge barrier to relational healing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what do you think about tracking? Like when partners want to track the, um, the partner that betrayed? Yeah, definitely. I have a, <laughs> I, I think, look, you know, if you've done betrayal, it really falls on you to earn that trust back and to mm-hmm. make your partner feel safe. If you want to save the relationship, then you need to, to show up and let your partner understand where you're at, what you're doing. So they begin to feel safe in the relationship and that you're serious about it. And with this kind of betrayal, there has to be real honesty there and an openness to that until repair happens. Yeah. Think, think about a partner who finds out all of this stuff, right? Like all of this betrayal, a year's worth of secrets and lies. And they're saying, I want to try to make this work. I want to try and stay and make it work. But there were so many drips and drabs that kept coming out. So how are they supposed to rebuild trust and safety? How are they supposed to, yeah, how are they supposed to feel safe in a relationship with someone who has continually lied to them unless, like Dwayne said, that person is willing to do whatever it takes to help them feel safe? Mm -hmm. So it would make sense to me that if somebody hears about, you know, their husband or their partner who's been out during the day, during when when she thought that he was at business lunches, right, or Mm -hmm. business meetings, and he was out having sex with prostitutes or whatever it is, meeting with a secret affair partner, then it would make sense to me that in the recovery process, she's going to want to track him. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of partners will not want to do that. And they'll say, this is, this is not the marriage I want. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Um, it's a very personal decision, but I am within reason. I'm all for doing whatever it takes to create safety. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you see it as creating safety if the um, partners are in agreement about it. I mean, do you have an addict who's generally like doesn't want to be tracked? Typically I don't. And I think that that's only because of the fact that I work so much from this partner trauma model and I bring it in so early Uh that it's sort of part, it's just part of the way that I do therapy. There Maybe there's some resistance. I'm not going to say there's never any resistance to different boundaries, whether it's tracking or having to put an internet filter on a computer mm-hmm. or a phone or, right, or coming up with a travel plan if you're going to be traveling. Yeah. There could be some resistance. Yeah, um, that can happen. But I usually reframe it in a way that, you know, that makes them realize how appropriate it is and how important it is for them to take steps, concrete steps to earn their trust back, their wife's trust back, mm-hmm. or their partner's trust back. Okay. And, and typically they get on board. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Yeah. And once they understand it as creating safety um, and it's not about like, I got to watch you, you know, it's not, it becomes about building trust and building safety once they understand it from that perspective, a lot of that resistance also tends to go away. Yeah, I see that. I think sometimes the addict does see it as like, well, now they don't, you know, they want to know every minute where I am and all this stuff. And this feels like an invasion of privacy. That is often what I'll hear. And and what I would say is like with with addiction, you know, I think especially with sex addiction, there is this 
misunderstanding between what is what's privacy and and what's secrecy. Mm-hmm. And they've had so much secrecy in their life that sometimes they mistake that as privacy. Wait, so what do you say when sometimes you will hear like someone's phone is locked and the partner is suspecting something, they won't open their phone, right? When you're talking about the difference between secrecy and privacy, like how do you frame I would, that? I'd be like, well, I, I would be like, do you have an, a, a relationship that's open? What's so horrible on your phone that in an honest relationship you can't share, mm-hmm. right? What's going on there? You know, you have, I mean, you have, you have done these betrayals, right? Um, it seems appropriate that your partner should be able to build some safety and some trust and it's on you who has done the betrayal to earn that trust. What back. about someone who like they're suspecting though? Let's say someone who's suspecting an Wait. affair. They don't know about betrayal yet. You're saying, is it appropriate for them to ask to see somebody's phone? Yes. Like, like, like what do you betrayal? say? Let's say they ask to see a partner's phone. The partner's giving them resistance. Cause I, I do hear this as well. You know, like they can't really know. So, this is my take on it. And it's similar to Dwayne's, you know, outside of betrayal, if a couple came in and a partner, let's say she came in having been cheated on in the past or having trust issues from her history, maybe even family of origin. Mm-hmm. It's not fair for a partner who's coming into a relationship with trust issues to put that on her new partner and to say things like, I need to see your phone whenever I want to. I'm going to put a tracking device on. Dwayne and I don't believe in that. And we wouldn't right. in any way suggest that kind of behavior or that for, for a relationship. Okay. But Again, in the context of betrayal, you know, how is a partner supposed to just say, okay, I'm just going to choose to believe you, even though I've believed you for 20 years and I found out the entire 20 years of our marriage, you have been lying. To be honest, I think she would be stupid. And I, I mean, that's, that sounds like an awful thing to say, but that's how, <laughs> that's how, that's how passionate I am about this, that, you know, for her to stay, she needs to really know that he's willing to do whatever it takes to help rebuild trust. Mm-hmm. And in the case in the case of a partner who's suspicious with good reason, not the situation where someone just comes in and they're just not trusting because they're not a trusting person or they've had past experiences, right, that have made them more, feel unsafe and untrusting. I do think then too that a healthy relationship um, that a partner would say, if, um, if, if they're not having an affair, yeah, of course you can look at my phone. And if they are indeed not having an affair and there's nothing on the phone, I would then say, maybe we need to you know, get into counseling to talk about what's going on in our relationship. Or maybe you need to get into mm-hmm. counseling to talk about what's going on that you were suspicious and thinking that when indeed nothing's happening. Okay. But, yeah. but why, why hold back? Why not show a phone to to somebody that you love if they're trying to seek safety, if they're scared mm-hmm. and there's nothing to be scared of rather than, you know, just keep saying, I'm not doing anything. Why do you need to see my phone and resisting it? You can even say, I think this is a little bit crazy. Like I'm not doing anything, but yeah, here, look at my phone. Uh-huh. Absolutely. I want you, I want you to feel safe. Yeah. Take the phone, do what you need to do with the phone. Yes. Yeah. yeah that's a compassionate partner right there. Right. It sounds like, yeah. So can you tell people how they can find you? You've given us some really good information. And well, two things. Can you tell them when what to do if they have been traumatized by an affair? And how do they find someone who is a specialist 
in that area? So one, and then two, how do they find you two to work with you specifically if they're in your area? Marnie, you want to go first? (laughs) Sure. So um, if somebody wants to find a certified sex addiction therapist, they can do that on the ITAP website. It's IITAP.com. And there's a a way that you can search in your area, either by state or zip code or city, and you'll find people there. Um, And also um, appsats.org is a place to find um, partner-sensitive therapists. So there are, are people there that work just with partners, some that work with couples. Um, but that's a great resource as well. What is that term, partner-sensitive therapist? That is somebody, we didn't get into this much, but traditionally in our field, there was um, the common practice was to treat partners from a codependency lens. uh So when they come in really to pathologize them and right off the bat to say, well, you've got to have your own issues that you brought into this, or you must have known this was going on, or it's a real, it's very blaming Mm -hmm. Um, and it's and it's very presumptive. And so the partner trauma lens is looking at a partner really like we've been talking about this whole hour here. This person is traumatized and she's traumatized not because of the abuse she suffered as a little girl, even though that happened and is over here, mm-hmm. you know. She is traumatized and is coming into therapy in this moment because she just discovered her husband's secret sex life, mm-hmm. you know, or secret sexual betrayal. Yeah. So that's what I mean by a partner sensitive therapist, really looking at the needs of the partner. And then if anyone wants to find me, if you're in the LA area, uh, my website is lacrh.com. And that stands for the Los Angeles Center for Relational Healing. And um, yeah, you can find me there. And also Dwayne and I have a website, um, helpingcoupleshealcom which is um, a great place for resources. And it's also, um, you can, you can download our podcasts there. And we also have information there on all of our upcoming helping couples heal workshops. Where do you hold the workshops? Traditionally, we've just done them. We were just doing them in LA. We, we recently did our first one, um, out of, out of the city in Northern California. And we've got one next weekend in San Diego. And then we've got some coming up in Houston and New York later in the year. And our, yeah, we're really expanding. Cool, cool. And you do you run them yourselves, or you also have partners that help you run them? No, we run them ourselves. We're we're there with with the couples who uh, need help and need support and want to understand this model from a relational perspective. And um, I think that's what really is really powerful about our workshop is that they come as a couple and they work on the relational trauma with other couples. And that makes it extremely powerful and extremely healing. Wonderful. So how can they find you, Dwayne? Uh, they can find me at theaddictedmind.com. That's my other podcast. I also have a group practice in Long Beach at novismindfullife.com. They can find me there as well. And uh, yeah, if they want to reach out. Hey, okay, thank do. you so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us.
I hope you truly enjoyed today's episode. Remember that you can get free hypnosis downloads over at my website, drlizhypnosis.com, D-R-L-I-Z hypnosis.com. I work all over the world doing hypnosis. So if you're interested in working with me, please schedule a free consultation over at my website and we'll see what your goals are and if I can be of service to you in helping you reach them. Finally, if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast or tell a friend. That way, more and more people learn about the power of hypnosis. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful week. Peace.